the first use cases for 5G where most of the markets will introduce 5G is going to be around mobile broadband. So it will be around enhancing consumer services. And then, then I think the complexity right now lies more on our side in how to automate around cloud technologies. How do you get automated workflows? How do you go from today's pretty sort of infrequent upgrades to the network to continuous integration, continuous development where you automate the whole process of introducing new software, be it from Ericsson or, or someone else into the network. Welcome to another episode of Transmissions from Tomorrow, the show that gives you an inside route to the people driving the digital transformation of business and technology in the world of telecommunications. And I'm your host, Des Blanchfield. Hi, and welcome to another episode in Transmissions from Tomorrow. I'm your host, Des Blanchfield. And today I have the pleasure of having in the studio with me, Jan Haglund. Hi, Jan, how are you? Hi, Des, I'm fine. How are you? Very well, thank you. Now, I have to laugh because uh, I did an intro just a moment ago and I accidentally said the wrong country, but you are uh, in Sweden dialing in today um, at the uh, start of your day and it's the end of my day. Thank you so much for making yeah. time to join me. My pleasure. Now, Jan, you're the head of portfolio and R&D in the uh, Business Area Digital Services Group, and I'd like to get into some detail about that role and what it entails and, and how you've come to be to that. But before we dive into the detail of that, uh, I wonder if you'd mind we just get to know you a little bit personally, if that's okay. Yeah, perfect. So um, maybe just a little background on you personally. Where are you originally from and uh, what's your <laughs> academic, academic career path like and how did you come to be at Ericsson? Yeah, many good questions. Um, so where are I from? That's a question I, I ask myself sometimes. And I was actually born in, in Stockholm, Sweden. So I'm um, Swedish. Uh, I grew up in many places. I grew up uh, actually a couple of years in the Arabic countries, um, starting my schooling career in an English school, in fact. Uh, but then moved way back to Sweden and even way up north, north of the Arctic Circle and lived in a village of 4,000 inhabitants during a lot of my school. And then back to Stockholm. So uh, most of my academic career is from uh, Stockholm, uh, but I also did parts of my PhD in uh, France, Grenoble, but I did graduate here from Stockholm at the Royal Institute. Wow. So, um, yeah, <laughs> a bit of a broken background. That's an amazing background. Um, and uh, I, uh, I remember someone telling me from your team that in your spare time, you're an amateur singer. Yeah, that's actually true. Yeah, I do a bit of singing. I've always done it. I always loved music. So, yeah, I try to find the time. Well, I was going to say, it's, uh, I think these days with the uh, pressure that uh, some of the roles like yours uh, place you under, that's good to have a, a bit of an outlet that's not technical. Um, tell us a little bit about your, uh, your uh, academic uh, career path. I mean, you've got a, um, a master's in science, uh, you have a PhD, uh, you've got an amazing pedigree there. Give us some insight into kind of uh, what drew you to do those degrees and, and, and to go on to do a PhD and, and kind of what you got out of that. No, I'm an uh, engineer by formation. So I did uh, engineering physics and computer science. And uh, I also did a PhD of computational physics. Uh, it was pretty cool, actually. Uh, quantum mechanical calculations of solid state materials. Um, so that kind of um, brought me into Ericsson. So my first couple of years with Ericsson, uh, 25 years ago, uh, was with Ericsson Research. Uh, a lot about software technology, exploring new um, ways of modeling uh, telecom systems, uh, new ways of, uh, you know, programming in a more efficient way. And uh, yeah, some of that is coming back now in uh, cloud native technologies and uh, parallel computing and all that. Wow. Well, you know, Ericsson's um, famous for, for a number of things in that space and particularly Erlang. And uh, I think it's, is it WhatsApp that's written in Erlang uh, still today? Yeah. Yeah, uh, correct. Yeah, that's right. A language designed for the, uh, I guess, the, the five nines requirements of high performance in telco space. So 
you know, it's, it's interesting when you talk to a lot of people about the engineering space and development of software and languages that they often don't know that. But uh, Ericsson's been at the bleeding edge of those. And a lot of big transitions in the company itself around cloud and, and digitization and, and, and I guess the orchestration, which we'll get into in a minute. Um, yep. Jumping back to your role. So um, head of portfolio in R&D uh, in the uh, business area digital services. What, what does that actually entail? For folk who haven't sort of necessarily heard of that role, what does that entail? And what does a day, <clears throat> what does a day in your life look like? Yeah, yeah, good question. Uh, now, but Ericsson has uh, a few uh, business areas where we uh, deal with the business. So we have another business area dealing with, we call it networks, where all the radio and transport businesses. We have one big business area for managed services where we manage, I think, a fifth of uh, all the uh, networks in the world. Uh, but my business area then is uh, digital services where we do um, all the networks uh, for um, OSS systems, BS systems, the whole core network systems, and what we also do in a cloud cloud infrastructure. Communication services is also part of what we do, um, you know, voice over LT and those, those kind of things. So my, my job then is, well, it's really twofold. One is the portfolio strategies uh, to uh, support the di different uh, solution areas, as we call them in Ericsson, to, um, you know, for the investment decisions, the strategies, the portfolio that we want to move forward with. Uh, in a consistent way. And the other one is to overlook the R&D area. So I'm heading up um, uh, R&D from a functional point of view, how to develop R&D, how to work with the common methods, processes, and tools, and also the whole journey towards the cloud native applications. And we're actually developing a whole framework around that. So uh, that in short is uh, where I spend my time. I remember uh, talking to uh, one of your associates, uh, Matt Skullson, about uh, some of the work you did at OpenStack and uh, committing code to uh, both uh, Nova and Heat to get some of the performance you needed out of OpenStack. Uh, yeah. And I guess these days uh, you've made an interesting transition that um, in many ways I describe it as you were your own first customer in the digital transformation and the cloud transformation because you consume these services yourselves. You instantiate all of your own environments and run on your own infrastructure that you make available to, to other third parties and customers and integrators, I guess. Yeah. No, for sure. I mean, <clears throat> I think the whole trend towards cloud and virtualization, I mean, that started a number of years ago and we were, I think, pretty early to see that that it's an unstoppable trend. It makes perfect sense. And I mean, the technology is there and has a lot of promises. Uh, and for sure we are, I mean, that's the mainstream today. We're both obviously selling that. That's the vast majority of our contracts. I think we're at you know, north of 140 or 150 contracts on uh, virtualized software. But on top of that, as you say, we also use it internally uh, for shared cloud environments and the way we work uh, to, to make ourselves faster and more efficient. I guess it's some of the uh, successes we've seen in some of the very big cloud operators uh, in, in traditional sort of application hosting outside of telco. One of the things I think made them very successful in the likes of, let's say, Amazon, for example, was they, they were developing technology for their own purposes before they made it available to third parties. And I think that's something you've successfully achieved across the whole of the Ericsson family. We were talking earlier about some of the challenges that we're seeing in the market, and, and you gave me a couple of really great examples of customer stories and some of the challenges they're facing. I mean, in the space of cloud and particularly network function virtualization, um, you had some interesting comments around, uh, I guess, the, the, the speed or slowness of, of, of adoption and some of the, I guess, the not so much is it disappointment or just the, the gap in, in expectation around uh, uh, the uptake of it. Um, what's your general sense, uh, you know, across the market and, and, and the industry as a whole, uh, not necessarily just your customers, but talking to some of your own customers and industry experts around the place. I mean, what's the general sense with the uptake of cloud and telco space and, and network function virtualization and so forth? 
Well, I think the, the general idea of, uh, of using cloud technology also for network applications and telecom is pretty straightforward. Uh, you can summarize that in, in one PowerPoint slide if you want. And that was also done, I think, when the whole thing was kicked off five, six years ago. Um, then in effect, it has proven to be uh, very complex. I think many, many of our customers and other, other people's customers have taken many different paths also to this, starting from different angles, different applications, some are starting with just a single application, perhaps, and trying out the technology, uh, whereas others are truly building an infrastructure. And, and we see that the complexity of those different journeys is quite different. Um, I mean, we have contracts or customers that are trusting Ericsson for more of, of a full stack kind of engagement. And we have, we have customers where Ericsson is, is a software supplier to some of the applications. Both models are possible, and I think one of the key things for, for all the vendors, including Arison, is really to be agnostic of the cloud environment. Uh, but, you know, it's not just about technology. I think that's, that's one of the key findings here when we talk to customers. It's also about operating models, uh, troubleshooting and support, and really making sure that you think through the lifecycle management of, of the entire environment. Yeah, I, in fact, uh, on that comment, I remember reading in the latest um, uh, mobility report, uh, there was a comment uh, around statistics that I think Ericsson's onboarding something like one million new subscribers a day. And um, it was interesting to see some of the commentary around that uh, coming from uh, Mobile World Congress back in Barcelona. I know some comments made around it and, and some presentations in, in, in the Shanghai event and more recently in uh, in the Americas event, that um, people were just struggling to cope with the scale and the uptake. But I guess when you think about the the, the markets that we're talking about, the you know Africa is a continent with 54 nations, 1.1 billion people, and in, in in general is uh, what 1.3 billion in, in India and 1.5 billion in China. Those new emerging markets that they're they're switching on so fast that the the old traditional legacy systems of manual onboarding clients just isn't coping. And I guess this is where your customers must be coming to you uh, where they've been pulling their hair and saying, help, we, we just need a way to automate and, and speed this up with, with business support systems and, and I guess uh, operational support systems as well. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, one of the key use cases for, for introducing virtualization and NFV technologies is actually uh, subscriber uptake and capacity uptake. So that, that's a use case we see in some of those markets that you mentioned. Uh, you know, they, they're asking for, for a lot of capacities right now based on Ericsson's virtualized systems. But there are also other approaches. You can use uh, NFE technologies also for introducing some of the new services you, you want. For example, IoT services, uh, you know, if you have the capacity you need right now on your mobile broadband service. So there are different approaches. The, um, some of the commentary here around the place uh, where people are getting a little frustrated about what they thought would be a, an instant on uh, with the adoption of 5G and, and some of the you know, use cases you're talking about with you know, rolling out everything from autonomous vehicles to sensors and IoT. Uh, we, we see two very uh, different, uh, I guess, approaches taking place just here in Australia, my own backyard. I won't name the, the brands because that's not fair. But we have some telcos who, who expected it to switch on overnight just somehow magically like a, uh, you know, a, a kitten with uh, butterfly wings and rainbow-coloured fur and a unicorn horn. And, and then the other players are, are, are I guess, uh, you know, longer operators, and they know that you know, the whole process of getting data and infrastructure and routers and switches and servers and cloud environment and then the ability to orchestrate is going to take years. So I guess there's a, a fairly big gap there in, in, I guess, the experience and the maturity of some of the operators where 
some have been there and done that and invested a, a large sunk cost with you know 15 year plus ROIs in infrastructure and have the capacity to run with that. And then others are newer players who just don't understand why it, it, it shouldn't happen overnight. What are you seeing out in the industry in general? Is, is, it, is it the case that some of the new players are just getting frustrated because they don't have the experience and understand it? Or is there still a lot of gap, uh, a lot of gaps in the knowledge of, of what the expectation should be from some of these new technologies? Well, you know, I think there are both uh, similarities and differences in the introduction of, of 5G. So, you know, I've been, I've, I'm old enough to have been around with the 2G introduction, 3G and 4G introductions. And I think one thing we've seen is actually that the technology adoption has gone faster and faster. So 4G was faster than 3G, et cetera. And I th think we can, we can expect that 5G is going to be faster than 4G. So I think, and why is that? Well, uh, I think a couple of things. Obviously, the industry is learning. But I think there's one big fundamental difference with 5G. If we look at, uh, I mean, we can start with the radio side. I mean, previously, uh, the radio side requi required a completely new hardware to be rolled out for new standards to happen. Uh, you know, in our case, our, our hardware has actually been prepared since a few years for, for 5G. So also on the radio side, in most or many of our customers, it's, it's, it's a matter of software. So it's a matter of a simpler upgrade, which obviously does the rollout, makes the rollout faster. And if we look at the core side and the things I'm overlooking, it's the same thing because with cloud technology and NFV uh, for the mature operators, uh, like well, Tel Telstra is Telstra is one example in in Australia where where Ericsson has been working uh, since several years. Then on NFV technology, it's it's primarily a software thing uh, to introduce what's needed then to for for 5G services, both with the current sort of EPC standards and also going forward then with the uh, 5G core standards. And Ericsson has kind of a dual mode core strategy for that. So I think you know. That will that also speaks for a quicker technology adoption, and that it's going to be, well, if not easier, at least faster to introduce um, new technology. But then, of course, you have the device side. So you know, there needs to be chipsets, there needs to be devices. But we see a pretty fast, um, pretty fast development on that side too. So let's see. I would still predict that although it's going to take time, like all all changes, uh, it's going to be faster than before, and that's what we're gearing for. Would it be fair to say, though, that in the uh, in that transition, sort of radio network and two G, I guess to three and then four and and now five G, uh, the 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 complexity of the technology is getting incrementally higher. In that you know, switching from radio to three G, we might have been able to do you know good digital voice. Four G, we could sort of you know start to stream voice and video, and people can now watch Netflix. But uh, is it fair to say that the complexity that's available with five G isn't just the telco? It, it's a whole new generation of networking. Uh, that we we really haven't seen before, and that you know autonomous vehicles are going to be you know, able to drive at 100 kilometers an hour and get real time uh, low latency connectivity to make decisions on whether to run someone over or not. I mean that's not really been possible with some of the slightly simpler platforms like three and four G, has it? I think that's a very good question. I mean, if we take it in steps, I think the the first use cases for for 5G, where most of the markets will introduce 5G, is going to be around mobile broadband. So it will be around enhancing consumer services, and then, then I think the complexity right now lies more on our side in how to automate around cloud technologies. How do you get automated workflows? How do you go from from today's pretty sort of infrequent upgrades to the network to continuous integration, continuous development, where 
you know, you automate the whole process of introducing new software, be it from Ericsson or, or someone else into the network. So I think that's that's where we are right now. And I think that's kind of a prerequisite for doing anything beyond that. But then, as you say, you know, with a lot of a lot of the opportunities with 5G and also economically lie outside of just consumer mobile broadband, things like connected vehicles or utilities or a transport segment, etc. I mean, all those kind of industries will benefit from uh, higher connectivity and also more service enablement. So uh, for sure, and that will only happen with lots of automation and lots of, you know, taking away that complexity that otherwise would be there. That probably underpins my next question, and that is that the whole sort of topic of, you know, how to get to 5G, uh, that whole sort of migration path. Uh, um, can you give us some insight in kind of what you're sharing with the market openly around uh, sort of, you know, your recommendations for that? Because I guess in many ways there's some commonalities in what you're mentioning there with, with the, the shift from 4 to 5G for the traditional mobile users or mobile device users. Um, is it a common approach globally for most of the operators to go down that path, or are there some niche operators who are offering different services? I know in India, for example, there are some operators who have uh, data-only uh, uh, plans where they're sort of rolling out low-cost phones or using uh, uh, third-party apps to, to make calls as opposed to sort of the built-in traditional uh, you know, killer app, if you like, that uh, phone voice calls used to be. Uh, are we still at the point where that... Um, you know, that whole question of how to get to 5G, that migration path to 5G is traditional telco, as you were just saying, or are there some outliers who are challenging that, that and, and coming to you to ask, you know, how do we do this differently? Yeah, I mean, the first step for 5G is, is pretty clear. Uh, I mean, the industry agreed on, on something called the non-standalone mode, which is really a critical way of saying that 5G is introduced as an extension to 4G. Um, and that was an acceleration of 5G because uh, many many service providers thought that you know they need they need 5G faster rather than slower, uh, so that's going to happen. You know we're we're releasing our first end-to-end -end release with radio and core and OSS and all that by end of this year, uh, and we're going to see uh, some customers uh, both east and west picking up on that pretty pretty quickly. Um, so I think that's one thing, and that that will then continue to evolve with new standards and new services during two, 2019 and 2020 uh, into mass market. Um, but then I think you have a pretty good question on the roles of the service providers. I think the jury is still out on that one, um, but I think we will see probably more and more of different kind of roles and business models where some will maybe focus on the connectivity, some will focus more on, you know, service offerings to consumers. Some might want to be a platform also for business to business kind of services. And it's not necessarily that everyone will do the same thing in that. I'd, I'd rather predict that we'll see more differentiated uh, service provider roles in the future. I guess that's where the magic of, of where the future is taking us, isn't it? The, the diversity that's now possible in that once upon a time with you know, people rolling out 3G, the, the key change really was, I guess, the, the radio and antenna technology at one end and what was at the data center and the front end, the, 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 the basic phone handset. Uh, but everything in between was relatively straightforward. I guess now we're seeing yeah. a, a lot more possibility around innovative, new, out-of-the-box thinking, if you'll pardon the pun, on how people can provide what we thought were basic telco services. I, I remember seeing a demo of a phone call being made uh, on a traditional sort of you know, 4G call or, or routed over 5G, and then WebRTC services being introduced to show images and, and video, and then it switched to a video conference call. I think it was a, one of the... Uh, Ericsson Network demos of like a bakery store and the person seeing the cake and then drop back and 
it, it really woke me up to the idea that when we think about what's going to be possible across the fifth generation network technology, uh, we probably need to stop thinking about phone calls as phone calls uh, and more as, as fully immersed digital experiences. Um, yeah. The the non standalone mode is that uh, is that like an encapsulation of a four G? How does that kind of how does that get rolled out? Uh, no, it's pretty straightforward. It's uh, what you do is that on uh, for the radio side, you you extend uh, your current radio sites uh, that that today do four G, you extend them so that they can cope with the new standard that's called NR on the radio side. Uh, so you do the upgrade of whatever is needed from a software point of view to them. And obviously, you'll need devices then that, that can cope with that. And that brings you up from a radio point of view to very high speeds, to the speeds of, of 5G. Uh, on the core network side, you need to do a few software upgrades also to recognize that new, uh, that new radio. Uh, but it doesn't really change anything fundamentally in the architecture, on the interfaces. And, and from a consumer point of view, you obviously get, uh, you get access to 5G services from a speed and feed point of view. Um, so I mean that's the first step. Then uh, then there are there are more further steps being you know being rolled out during nineteen uh, as planned. Right. So I guess it's it's in when we sort of went from three to four G, it was more of a cutover from one version to the other. Whereas this it's it's more of a blended, cross pollinated integration of, of different pieces of it instead of a, just of a big bang. Uh, I guess is that a fair way to describe it? Yeah, you can say that. Uh, it actually depends on on who you are and what what your strategy has been. But the uh, the radio interfaces now, if we speak radio for a while, uh, are a little bit more similar between 4G and 5G than they used to be, which makes it possible then for at least for Ericsson uh, to um, to upgrade our installed base uh, and to upgrade the uh, current infrastructure to 5G in a smoother way. So I think that's a fundamental difference. But that might not be the same for everyone. So I can't I can only really speak for Ericsson in that sense. No, absolutely, and and that that that's also part of the challenge, isn't it? That some are going to roll out uh, at different speeds and different investment levels. Um, one of the things I was interested in in hearing you talk about recently was the um, the potential markets that were being looked at. Uh, yeah. You know, certain comments being made around the industry about uh, you know the speed and the uptake or lack thereof. Uh, where are the opportunities? And you had some great comments and insights to share around the potential opportunities around. I guess revisiting the enterprise space and what's happening there, and and what types of industry segments could be revisited, as opposed to just the traditional phone telephony market space of handsets. Um, I'd love to get your thoughts on kind of where those new emerging markets might be for operators to look at. Uh, you know, whether it's in building or or you know, I guess uh, campus or precinct wide, uh, specifically the enterprise piece, and, and and if there's an uptake from the enterprise and interest from them, and in, 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 as a result. Yeah. No, but I think a lot of the customer discussions right now are happening around uh, where um, where the uptake is going to be and where the markets are. We've done a lot of economical studies. Some are available also for sharing at the Ericsson.com site. Uh, but if you summarize those a bit, we see a, a big trend of digitalization in many industries. Many industries are looking how they can take the next step by introducing digital technologies. And then 5G is a piece of that. Uh, it's not all of that investment, but it's a significant piece and significant enough that service providers, you know, like like all the ones we know across the world, uh, have a big chance of being relevant, not only for us as consumers, but very much more relevant than they are today for, for enterprises. And that could be verticals like, you know, manufacturing is a big thing. You know how to automate around manufacturing and get uh, get connectivity and services uh, automated. Uh, we mentioned uh, transport and cars for sure. Connected cars, uh, also big thing. And a car is not just you know a car is many services at the same time. 
you know, you can think of the kids in the back seat watching video. You can think about the car docking in every night and loading up uh, maintenance data. You can think about the car maybe in real time or semi-real time getting navigation data and things like that to assist the driver. So a car can be many things at the same time with even different business models, different SLAs, different quality of service requirements. So, you know, that, that's yet another example. Healthcare, obviously, big thing across the world, how to help people and uh, what connectivity and uh, also low latency communication can do. And the list goes on. We've actually looked into 10 different industries and tried to assess, you know, where are they going to be and, and where's the money also. I remember seeing a, a talk that came out of, uh, I think it was uh, 5G World or IoT World in London, and uh, out of the, the 10 major use cases you were just mentioning, the different uh, nuances and skews, I think someone talked about nearly 240 different permutations of the use cases across yeah. the sorts of things you're talking about, because you know, when, as you said, you know, when you think of a car... Uh, it's it's kind of like a service provision platform. Uh, at the other end of the spectrum, I was reading an article the other day about uh, you know, um, uh, international uh, shipping liners uh, from cruise yeah. liners to contain li- to container ships, and how they're now uh, seeking out low latency connectivity because when they go in places like Australia with our famous Great Barrier Reef, uh, they've got to be very careful going through some of those very sensitive areas. And if they happen to touch the reef, they can destroy a kilometer of very sensitive uh, marine life. And apparently they, they're looking for lower and lower latency because the faster network connectivity they can get, the closer they can get to the edges of the channels and the less distance they have to cover and therefore the, the faster they get in and out to deliver services and the cheaper it is to, to deliver based on less fuel. Um, so there's probably, you know, someone commented the other day, I think from the Ericsson team, I forget who it was, there's, like, there's almost, it seems like another band of opportunity between the operators themselves and the consumers of all these little pockets of additional service provision for, I guess, you know, those platform services, whether it's a car or a plane or, or a sensor on a bridge. Um, what are you seeing in the market around that space? Is it, is, it, is it the case that there's an emergence of another whole layer of service provision that's between the service provider and the telco layer and the consumer that's emerging? Yeah, that's exactly how I see it. I mean, uh, we can, as you say, we've done studies of many use cases. We've broken it down. I think it's, you know, between two and 300 use cases we've analyzed in detail. But at least my experience from similar things when we introduce 3G, when we introduce 4G is you can, you can look ahead. You can try to figure out the use cases. In some cases, you'll be right. But in many cases, you'll be surprised about the innovation that happens when you do a step change of technology, like with 4G and also like with 5G, where the step change is not only in bandwidth, but also it's a step change in a short latency, then innovation happens on top of that. And some of the things you get positively surprised about, you know, because it's about understanding those industries, whether it's freight ships or cars or whatnot, you know. So uh, a lot of things will happen. Some of the things we, we haven't even predicted yet. The other thing that interests me is, um, and I know you uh, have written some uh, great stuff about this, and I think you spoke about it recently, uh, the whole new space around networks, uh, I mean, we talked about network function virtualization, that's, you know, even though it's complex, it's a relatively simple concept to get your head around, but things like network slicing, I mean, a lot of people are struggling to get their head around that. Um, I'd love to get your take on how do you describe, if you were to walk into a boardroom and someone hands you a whiteboard marker and you expect you to perform Jedi mind tricks on a whiteboard, 
How do you break down network slicing in plain English as it were to sort of just communicate that in 30 seconds? Because I think a lot of people listening to some of the previous shows that the Ericsson team have been on uh, come back with questions saying, network slicing sounds amazing. I still haven't got my head around it. Um, given that you've written a lot about it and you're uh, you know, basically the head of portfolio and R&D in the space, you're probably the, the, the greatest champion to describe it in its simplest sense. Network slicing uh, 101, break it down for us. Wow, that was an introduction. No, it's pretty, it's pretty straightforward. So, I mean, today you have one big network trying to, to make everyone happy, whether you're a consumer in an industry. Uh, the big thing now happening is that networks are becoming software. And if networks are anyhow software, why not build small virtual networks for different needs? You know, So you can have a separate virtual network with separate software for you know, cars or separate network for a certain enterprise or separate separate set of consumers. Uh, because they will not have the same needs. They will not have the same needs for services, the same needs for latencies. They might want to pay differently also. And therefore, you can tailor uh, the needs, the cost structures, and the properties characteristics of those virtual networks using network slicing. I guess this brings in uh, the opportunity to sort of talk briefly about some of the things that are demoed at all the big events you have. You have this really cute uh, uh, miniature city, and you have you know vehicles... Uh, 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 driving around it, and um, uh, every car, as it were, the little sort of virtual mouse car. And as as this thing drives around the city, it has you know various toll gates and services, and it buys things, sells things. And and, and in many ways, I think uh, people are still coming to grips with the idea that with the deployment of five G and all the capability around it, there are whole new financial models that can be implemented with you know things like cars driving around, uh, paying different services for different types of networks at different times, and that if you're in the open road. Uh, you don't necessarily want to be consuming a lot of content for perhaps, or if you're in the city, you want lower latency, higher throughput to get more information and news and traffic data. Is there a trend that's appearing now where companies are realizing that there's an opportunity to, to provide different tiered services at different prices? And, and, and if so, are the, how are they looking to provide that and, and make that available? And, 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 and is there anyone even in that space remotely close to doing that yet? Um, I think the whole uh, IoT services, I think that's the forerunner to what we're going to see more of. So, yeah, for sure. I mean, we see lots of IoT services now where uh, people are trying to build on top of networks and also different kind of business models where you might not even know who your service provider is. You're just paying for the IoT service. And so I think that's a great example of people exploring that. But I think you're absolutely right that a key thing here is the, the sort of the tailoring that I talked about, the policies, because... You know, uh, the kind of service you want will, will vary with who you are, the device you're using, where you are, the time of day and whatnot. So lots of the stuff that uh, we're, we're um, releasing right now and will be releasing is around policy controlled or policy steered kind of services and network slices. That's also what the, what the, the standardization bodies have been working on too. So yeah, I'm pretty hopeful for that. That's one of the big trends that will happen during this and next year. I imagine consumers are, are more and more uh, uh, savvy and ready for this to happen because when we think about the uh, evolution of, of the smartphone, uh, you know, when sort of the, the very first, let's say, iPhone came out and we got used to the idea of these little icons as apps, uh, nowadays it's, it's normal to sit down and, and, you know, watch a movie on Netflix or uh, listen to, you know, the Premier League football on, on digital radio and, and people are used to that. They almost assume it's there. Um, so I imagine with the, the whole um, you know, migration to 5G and the, the, the whole transformation that's taking place around the cloud platforms and network function virtualization and the whole distributed cloud at the edge of the network, th 
people are probably more ready now to consume those multiple tier services potentially independently of their traditional operator than they ever have been because of that adoption of apps on smartphones. I'm just wondering whether the enterprise is ready. Do, do you think enterprise is ready to consume services at, at that distributed level or, or are they still looking for one provider, that one throat to choke? Um, yeah, good question. I mean, there are two, two parts to your question. I mean, first of all, consumers, I think, as you say, they're ready, but I think also we're going to see trends on the consumer side. I actually met a neighbor last night and he was suntanned in Sweden, can you imagine? So I asked him why and you know, he, he, he's my age, but he'd been out, out running around for Pokemon Go. Uh, that's a bit yesterday's news. But I mean, that just showed me that, uh, you know, the, the kind of category of, of uh, using new gaming kind of technologies on the consumer side, that's also an adoption that will also benefit from new type of, of networks, uh, including edge and, and uh, shorter latencies. And then you have enterprises, you know. And... Uh, well, I think if the money is there, the knowledge is going to be there. There's a lot of curiosity uh, among enterprises that we meet and Ericsson has whole programs. We're not, we're not selling directly to enterprises. Ericsson's role is to enable service providers for their success in enterprises. Be very clear about that. But having said that, we're learning also as we speak about what mining are thinking about, what transportation. We have collaborations with factories. We're working with bus companies too. And, and, you know, we're learning from them, they're learning from us. And I think if the money is there and the efficiency is there, you know, it's going to be adopted. Yes, it's almost a case of, I forget the movie, but there was a famous quote in a movie once uh, around a baseball uh, game that uh, someone said something to the effect that if you build it, they will come. And I think in many ways yeah. that, you know, you're, you're from the 3GPP standard uh, uh, platform through to implementing the, the radio technologies and the, the cloud and the virtualization capabilities, you've effectively built this and now they are coming. And, and I guess it's really people with imaginations from the service provision space or the, the willingness or readiness of the operators to, to, to move into this, whether they've got sunk costs, they've got to recover from an ROI from existing data center infrastructure and routers and switches and radio antennas, or whether they're just going to jump in and invest. I'm, I'm really excited to see where this goes, which kind of, you know, before we wrap up, I'm really keen to, to kind of um, give you an interesting challenge that I often ask my guests to have. And that is if I was to hand you okay. a, a virtual crystal ball per se, um, given everything we've been talking about and, and, and the evolutionary path that, that is potentially there, um, you know, just from your personal sense more than anything, um, not necessarily an official party line, but uh, next 12 to 18 months, based on, on what you're seeing and the, the I guess, the, the momentum that's starting to build and, and the demand for new services and the uptake, uh, hopefully, that speeds up at the carrier level, uh, you know, where, where, what's your sense in the next year and a half to sort of beyond? Where are we going to be? Where are the big changes and trends that are, that are going to be enabled or, or come about? Um, I mean, first of all, uh, we're going to see more of what we have, but faster. I think it's going to be faster and faster. Speed of change is increasing and the technologies, technologies are enabling that. So it's probably going to be us humans that are going to be in the way. And I think we have to get out of the way with automation. So I think more and more automation, there's a lot to do still in our industry. So that's that's one thing that will happen during the next, say, 12 to 18 months. I think the other thing which, um, you know, has happened in other industries is what we call as a service. Uh, I think uh, the maturity for that is pretty low still on our side. But uh, uh, to introduce more and more as a service where perhaps Ericsson and uh, the, our, our peers will be providing services from our side rather than deploying and sending software or hardware to, to different customers. That's also something which I, I predict will, um, will accelerate in speed. 
Do do you think that's going to migrate to a new breed of uh, telco service providers who are effectively self-service built on the capabilities you have? They don't necessarily have to have infrastructure. We've sort of seen the the WhatsApps and Skype come along at the application layer. Um, But from what I'm seeing with your BSS and OSS capabilities... um, is it is it the case that we that we're going to see a whole new breed of, of operators come from a virtual space in the same way we have with cloud operators? That's too early to see, but I think what we will see, I think, is different service providers taking definitely different roles. Some focusing connectivity, maybe some focusing on only the services, and some doing the whole thing. So more, uh, yeah, more differentiation on that side for sure. It's going to be a brave world. Um, and it was interesting your comment just there before with, uh, you know, I guess uh, devices and machines talking to each other. Uh, I wonder whether these machines are going to get smart to, smart enough to kind of have robots take over one day. I hope not. Uh, <laughs> let's hope there's always a, a future for humanity. Well, uh, Jan Hugland, uh, thank you so much for making time to catch up with me. It's been great to get to know you and, uh, and a little bit about your background personally and, and professionally and, and academically and, and great insights on, on what's happening around, I guess, the... Uh, you know some of the key spaces we're, we're seeing out there around cloud and network function virtualization. The, I guess some of the challenges with adoption. Um, I really loved your insights on, on that whole transition and how to get to five uh, G and the migration path. Um, and uh, look, thank you so much for joining on the show, and it's, it's been great to chat with you. And uh, hopefully, we'll have you back again soon. Thank you, Des. It's been a pleasure.